Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Once again, I'd like to welcome you to a program of empowerment. Today, we begin with a study from Buck Institute for Age Research. What they found that there's a molecule in some common foods that shows promise for age-related disorders. Now, the researchers at Buck Institute reported they study in natural aging, and they identified mitophagy-inducing what is called cumarin, C-O-U-M-A-R-I-N, or M-I-C for short. It's a molecule able to extend life in roundworm, C. elegans, which, by the way, is universally throughout the world. It is the common denominator in testing things to see if it helps roundworm at genetic level, it helps humans. So the compound also improved mitochondrial function in cells obtained from mice, meaning the energy factories. Now, mitophagy, M-I-T-O-P-H-A-G-Y, that's a process in the body that recycles damaged mitochondria, which are the cell's power plants. Defective mitophagy occurs in neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS. Well, this MIC is a type of coumarin occurring in plants, including cinnamon. Yeah. Now, why is that important? Because it has anticoagulant, antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral, anti-cancer, antioxidant, and other properties. So, this is important because they tested in Parkinson's disease and found an improvement. So, just one more thing that we can add. Now, there will be a time when someone will bring out a supplement of some type that has this in it, in concentrated form. So I'm just telling you now that this is part of what we call functional medicine, meaning we're taking a nutrient, we're eating a food like broccoli or broccoli sprouts. Why? Because that broccoli sprout or broccoli or cauliflower, asparagus, uh, kale, mustard, horseradish, wasabi, these all contain a nutrient called indole-3-carbonyl or isothiocyanate. Now, that's just a technical term for something that helps the body fight cancer, prevent cancer, stimulates the immune response, has all these wonderful things it does. So that's a functional group of foods. Curcumin that is found in turmeric that people all over the world use in their seasonings every day. That fights cancer and helps the immune system. So in pomegranate, well, that helps create uh, the cleansing of the arteries, cleansing of the veins, and that helps prevent atherosclerosis, which then leads to heart attacks and heart disease. These are all functional, and yet historical, we didn't think about this. We just thought, well, you know, have your fruits and vegetables, they're good for you. But then we also added in, we'll have meat three times a day, and then have Carbohydrates three times a day, white bread, mashed potatoes, etc. We got some of it right, but a lot of it wrong. And then we had this notion that it doesn't matter what you eat, as long as it's in moderation. Yes, even a moderate amount of a toxin is still toxic. So going to a clean, healthy, organic, hopefully locally grown produce makes a difference. From Texas A&M University, had a study about flavonoids, and they can fight endometriosis symptoms. This was published in the peer-reviewed journal Endocrinology. 
The researchers outline how flavonoids may be able to help suppress the symptoms of inflammatory diseases like endometriosis. By the way, for the people who are not aware of it, endometriosis, you have cells similar to those in the lining of the uterus, and they begin growing in other places in the body that they shouldn't, and that causes inflammation. It's a very painful condition. It affects millions of women, and if, within orthodoxies, there's no cure. However, flavonoids have been associated with anti-cancer, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antiviral medical benefits. And uh, we're only now being able to open up that chest of all those miracle uh, nutrients that happen in a fruit or vegetable. Once again, the more fruits and vegetables you eat, the healthier you're going to be, the longer you're going to live. So uh, Professor Stephen Safe, a professor in the Pharmacology Department, School of Biomedical Sciences at Texas A&M University, said that they were, quote, we were able to show that there is a strong connection between flavonoids, there's your apples, your oranges, your tangerines, and endometriosis. He says, by eating more foods that contain flavonoids, grapes, right, prunes, people are more likely to reduce their chances of endometriosis or reduce the severity of its symptoms. And uh, they looked at about 20 different flavonoids and showed an interaction with what is known as NR4A1 and NR4A2, which are two of the receptors that they studied. Both these receptors are involved in regulating inflammation, which is why they targeted them for treating endometriosis. And they found that apples, broccoli, all the berries, green tea, onions, and red wine were all positive in different degrees. So, have your fruits and vegetables. I suggest nine servings a day. Now, the government will tell you, well, three and a half to five. No, it's not enough. From the University of California, Davis, spirulina may help elderly patients with anemia and immunological dysfunction. Elderly folks suffering from anemia or age-related immune dysfunction deteriorate very quickly, and spirulina can help reverse that. Now, spirulina is a blue-green freshwater algae with an extensive track record. Oh, it's terrific. It helps. If you take it on a daily basis, and I know some of you are, uh, comes in a, you buy it in a powder, and you put about a teaspoon a day into any beverage that you want, healthy beverage, and you drink it. And it's terrific. And it's high in protein also. And this was the research division of rheumatology, allergy, and clinical immunology at the University of California. They learned this after testing the effects of spirulina on a group of seniors with or both of the two conditions and seeing very positive results. Mind you, that's one idea, one substance of functional food. Now, what would I have done if a person has arthritis? Well, first of all, I'd take them off everything that's inflammatory. All right? Then I would see they didn't take spirulina by itself. No. I would also suggest they take chlorella, also an algae, and wheatgrass powder or fresh wheatgrass juice and mix those three together. Now you've got a potent detoxifier, something that'll take lead, cadmium, mercury out of the body. It's a natural chelator and it protects the cells and stimulates the immune response. 
So that's just one more idea that can help with something simple and expensive. And their study was only 12 weeks of taking spirulina on a daily basis. And they found a big difference. All right? So better immune function. And finally today, in a new study, and this is from the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, being in nature, out in the woods, by the beach, a lake, on a hike, for 20 hours a week, that's all, could significantly boost productivity. Yes, according to them, people who spend more time outside are healthier, more energetic, more productive than those who are inside all the time. They studied 2,000 adults, and it reveals those spending 20 hours or more a week in a green or natural space were 41% more productive on an average day than those spending less time or less than 30 minutes a week outside. And three-quarters of all adults claim time in nature or green spaces gives them a boost of happiness that keeps them going all day. And a feeling experienced by 92% of those spending the most time outside. Meanwhile, 97% said it also makes them feel healthier and more energetic. A clear mind, 44%. Sleeping more soundly, 28%. And by the way, how about doing this? How about bringing nature in at night before you go to sleep and just when you're getting into bed? And you can get these little apps. You can put them on your phone. Uh, and you put it on, let's say, like uh, nighttime, hearing crickets and or maybe raindrops on a tin roof. Simple things were the ocean's waves hitting the shore. All of these induce a deep healing sleep, and they all impact you because you're bringing nature in. This morning I taught a class to a group of very stressed individuals, and I don't mention these things because they're packed. But in any case, they came from different backgrounds. But in this case, I'll just give you one example, one person who you wouldn't know. And uh, this is a person who was a nurse and also a nutritionist and was working way too many hours and didn't have time for herself. And by taking time to sit in nature quietly in a green space, and just allow herself to breathe and don't allow the mind to have cluttered thoughts and just be present. And that made all the difference in the world. And that only took about 15 minutes. That's mindful meditation. There are many different types of meditation. That's just one. And then I said to the whole group, remember, I did a study back in 1970. And in 1974, I knew that there was a connection, intuitively, between nature and humans. Now, by the way, there are thousands of studies that have supported that sense. More time outside, gardening, uh, making yourself a little aromatic garden inside your house. Even in your bedroom, you could make a little step shelves, right? And you could put plants, lavender, lilac, honeysuckle, jasmine, uh, chrysanthemum, and at nighttime they bloom. These are night bloomers. And all those fragrances go into the air. 
Now we know if we put two drops of lavender upon our chest or pillow at night, it helps induce a deeper sleep. So what about making your own little garden? But what I found is that I had two rooms, lead-lined rooms, with identical plants. These were ficus plants. Ficus makes a beautiful tree, and uh, it also makes great shrubs. Now those are being replaced by calusa. Calusa grows much faster and is a more elegant-looking shrub. Beautiful. And uh, my goodness, you buy them small, like 12 gallons, and uh, in a year you've got a 10-foot tall. I just measured one of my calusa yesterday. I planted it a year ago, and now it's around 10 feet. Anyhow, um, so what I did is I had people go in, the same people, by people, one at a time, and they would do different things. They would meditate, they would sing, they would uh, spray the plant and gently wipe the leaves, they would put a little fertilizer in, but it was all positive. On the other side was a plant where they would, one person out of the five, would not sing and, and do nice things. Instead, they would go in there and shake the tree and yell at it. Okay? Jump ahead, three months. Three months, they went back in and we put some uh, measurement equipment in the root system. And three months later, the needle was very, very low down. When people went in and the people who sang, the needle was positive and it was an even vibration. The plant was recognizing the people. On the other side, in the lead-based room, they went in and everything was positive until the one person who had shaken it and yelled at it went in and it went clear off the chart and it was erratic. It recognized this person and the negative energy that it brought. That was the first study of its kind, by the way. Um, I've done a lot of first studies and breakthroughs in science, and all this is being assembled, videos, photographs, documents, third person, and we'll have this up within a week. It'll be about an hour long, but it'll show you how I spent my days for 36 years as a scientist, part of the day, or evening, and the originality of some of these studies. For example, therapeutic touch. I created that in my laboratory. And then Dr. Doris Krieger, who's head of nursing at New York University School of Nursing, was a part of the study. And you'll see her, you'll see her meditating over a rat, and the rat was cured. Five out of five rats that had terminal cancer were cured by these five people out of 50. 45 were, weren't able to do it, five were. And their energy, they could transfer energy. Now, everyone knows, without science, that you can transfer energy just by looking in a loved one's eyes. The feelings that come up, the energy you exchange. A mother cooing and, and kissing and hugging her baby. The energy the baby's absorbing. When it's in the womb and the mother rubs her belly and sings and, and this wonderful energy exchanges, that's going to be a much, much, much more emotionally healthy baby. In any case, nature does the same thing. But, and now, years later, uh, a very famous professor, probably the most knowledgeable in the world about trees, proved scientifically that trees help each other 
If one tree has a disease, the root system sends chemicals and electrical charges over to the tree that's sick, trying to save it. Well, when you're in nature and you feel so good, you feel at peace, you feel complete, all that energy you're sharing. Therefore, the message is be conscious of your environment. Select environments that you can harmonize your energy with nature's energy. And when you harmonize with a positive thought, the energy becomes dominant. The healing energy dominates. And all other negative energies, fear, loss, insecurity, uncertainty, are collapsed in that moment. Now you can change it back if you start thinking the same negative thoughts. But when you're in nature, don't think negative thoughts. Keep it positive. Because nature's there to help you in the healing process. And this study uh, is just one reflection of that. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. What we're doing now and what we're doing every day is we're selecting some interesting clips, clips that will allow us to see what is happening on a daily basis in all areas, whether it's unique and excessive water that is flooding a whole a country or heat that is uh, causing the oceans to increase their heat and the icebergs to melt and the glaciers to melt and Antarctica and Greenland and Iceland to melt. We go behind the scenes and show you what's happening and what we can do about it, the problem and the solution. Right now, we're going to show you a clip about millions of young people, mainly, who are protesting what they see as a two-tiered system of justice how the media portrays Israel. And when the media says, and I agree with them, the mainstream media on this, I agree, that what Hamas did was an act of terror and should be condemned, and those participating should be held accountable, and that Israeli citizens deserve to live in peace and harmony. I agree with that. And they have a right to defend themselves. I agree with that also. However, that's where the mainstream media and most of the pundits stop, therefore justifying anything that is done against Palestinians. In fact, one Florida legislator suggested that all Palestinians should be killed. Yes. Was that person condemned? Not yet. Why not? That's hate speech when you want an entire species wiped out, ethnic cleansing. Now, you've got about 4.5 million Palestinians living in Israel. But what they were granted in 1967 and later is keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. These are illegal settlements. 700,000 plus Israelis who are hard right. Uh, they want to see all Palestinians gone. And where are the Palestinians supposed to go? Now their homes are all destroyed. There's no water. There's no food. Medicines are gone. They're having to amputate on children without anesthesia. You watch one of those films. There are thousands of those films on the Internet. And you think, oh my God, this has got to stop. But it won't stop. Because one has an ideological mindset. We're going to get rid of all of them, push them into the Sinai, and not allow them back. Well, the Sinai, you're going to put people in one of the hottest places on Earth? with no resources, intense, millions, 
How's that supposed to work out? Who's supposed to take care of them? What about their freedom? They will have no freedom. Not in Israel. So now, who's protesting? The mainstream media? No. Famous people? No. Young people? Yes. And these, this is growing because the more atrocities are committed against the innocent Palestinian children, and by the way, the figure is just leapfrogging. We're way behind an accurate figure because of how many people are buried in the rubble. When you have a 10-story building and it's filled with people and it's bombed, the people are going to die because of the bomb blast. But also, they're under the rubble. and They don't have any machines. You just see them with their hands trying to move some rocks. So it's probably triple the death rate. We're probably up around, realistically, around 30,000 dead, probably 15,000 children. We'll only know that after all this stuff is cleared. That might take months. But they will officially say at least 7,000 children dead. Imagine this. Imagine if tomorrow you woke up and you read in the papers that shooters went into schools and killed 7,000 students. What do you think our response would be? Well, why isn't there that response? Young people are responding. Here's some clips to show how they're responding. And it's peaceful, especially at the New York Times. This is really interesting. Where you'll see, if you're watching this, go to perian.live, scroll down to archives, scroll down to Gary Nall, and you'll see packed the whole uh, downstairs lobby of the New York Times, people quietly reading the names of dead children. And after some period of time, they'd only gotten through 40% of the names. So the police were called. What do you do when people are nonviolent and they're merely reading the names of dead children? What do you do? So they should have thought about this, thinking that once again, the power base, the big, the big groups, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and Fidelity could control any situation, as they've done for years, controlling corporations, board of directors, big pharma, big media, big banking, big, um, big food production. They control everything. But they haven't yet controlled independent thinkers and all the young people. Here's this clip. There are going to be over 500 actions today around the country in response to a call to shut it down for Palestine. Last week, we saw the biggest march for Palestine in U.S. history, but we can't go down to D.C. every week. Some people can't make it. So now the organizers have called on people to organize demonstrations in their own localities, at their workplaces, at their institutions, and are calling on people to do whatever they can to stop business as usual. Right now, we're at the BlackRock headquarters in New York City. Uh, it's about 8.30, and we've been tipped off that there's going to be a disruption inside. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and North of Grumman. And those bombs 
Those weapons have killed this incredibly long list that now actually must be longer because there are over 10,000 Palestinians dead in just one month. There is no excuse for anyone to be going about their business as usual when their offices are paying for the slaughter of children, men, women, who have done nothing except demand their rights to resist brutal occupation. On the other side of town, students at Fort Hamilton High School were preparing to walk out in solidarity with Palestine. We looked at the toolkit that was provided with us and we decided 11.30 would be like probably the best time. We, and then I decided that I really wanted to make it bigger so I spread it to the clubs. And yeah. um, there's, a, there's supposed to be a national walkout today. Yeah, People aren't supposed to be going to their jobs. Students are supposed to be walking out of the schools. It's, it's not just our school, it's supposed to be a national thing. So that's like, how we, that's first, how heard we first heard of it and yeah. then we brought it to our school. There's yeah. Honestly, we were handing out posters and lunch. We were yeah. just trying to get as many people to help on as we could. We were getting everyone who had Instagram, anyone who had any sort of social media to just like post about it so that we can get as many people to come 11.30, like six period. When the conflict with Ukraine happened, our school was so supportive. We had posters all over the hallways. People were able to charity. talk about it. People were able to talk about it and come talk with. And we it. had charity. Yeah, but suddenly when we want to raise money for people in Gaza, for children be, in Gaza, they're no. villainized. It's a religious it's a issue. Religious and issue. We're going to offend the it. other side. Just because I'm not from Palestine, just because I'm not from the region, uh, does not mean I can't show my support for it. You, you won't find any of the, the true answers, any of the, the real uh, experiences from people there uh, in Western media. You need to look elsewhere. Some of the high schools that didn't walk out spent their lunches phone banking Congress. Over at the Columbia School of Social Work, students were holding a sit-in in solidarity with Palestine. Yesterday, we held a nine-hour sit-in um, at the School of Social Work where we were threatened with sanctions. And today, we're here because it is part of the... Um, shut it down for Palestine movement that's happening all across uh, the world today. And we are here because we are gonna do a die-in. Currently, the School of Social Work uses a prop framework, which is uh, power, race, oppression, and privilege, where we learn about decolonizing social work, um, which we think is hypocritical when we are being silenced on Palestine, which is a colonized place. Students from across the city were gathering at Bryant Park for a rally. But while they were doing that, I went over to the New York Times headquarters where media workers were planning disruption in the lobby. I'm in the New York Times headquarters right now and protesters have just read out the names of journalists murdered by Israel. And now they're reading from these newspapers with the names of thousands of Gazans that have been murdered in the last month by Israel. And as you can see behind me, they are completely occupying the lobby. And they're also joined by protesters outside that are supporting them. During the disruption, we spoke to one of the organizers, Ari Brostoff, a senior editor at Jewish Currents magazine. When we see the newspaper of record doing an abysmal job at their own job, then we as their colleagues have to stand up and say that. Eventually, the police were called, but the protesters kept reading names anyway. The NYPD strategic response group is behind me. They're the arrest teams of the NYPD. And the protesters here have been reading off the names of Gazans killed by Israel, starting with the youngest. And right now, 45 minutes in, they're at four-year-olds. While all this was happening, the march at Bryant Park had grown to well over 10,000 protesters and was headed to the New York Times headquarters. By the time they reached the New York Times building, the anger was palpable. Shame on you! 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 
This was probably the most active day of protests in New York City since the beginning of Israel's massacre, but it doesn't even begin to capture the full scope of November 9th. Actions were held in every major city across the country. There was a protest at Debbie Stabenow's office in Detroit, a walkout at the University of Georgia, a picket in front of Textron, a military contractor in Providence, a protest outside of Congressman Deborah Ross's office in Raleigh, walkouts in Pittsburgh, a walkout in Tucson, the complete shutdown of the federal building in San Francisco, activists in D.C. surrounded the State Department, Boston crashed a fundraiser for Kamala Harris, New Jersey occupied Cory Booker's office, healthcare workers in Philly had a die at City Hall, Cleveland shut it down. Denver shut the state capitol building down. Atlanta had an overnight sit-in at the Israeli consulate. Veterans occupied congressional offices. One of Senator Elizabeth Warren's constituents, whose lost family in Gaza, confronted her while she was at dinner. Code Pink even disrupted Joe Biden. And that was just the U.S. Internationally, there were actions in Italy, Morocco, El Salvador, Canada, Japan. In total, there were 600 actions that took place worldwide in one day. In the last few weeks, I've heard a lot of people say they feel powerless to do anything about Israel's massacre. But nothing could be further from the truth. Israel's war machine relies entirely on a litany of institutions outside of its borders. It relies on banks and financial institutions that invest in it. It relies on media outlets echoing its lies. It relies on politicians that rubber stamp and unconditionally support its crimes. It relies on universities and schools that lie to their students about the situation. It even relies on restaurants and coffee shops and actors and musicians to give it cultural cover to make people think people actually support it. In other words, it relies on us. It relies on institutions we patronize, institutions we work for, and we can withdraw our support whenever we want. We can even stop them from functioning whenever we want. After all, how can a university continue to support Israel if all of its students support Palestine and won't go to class or won't pay tuition until the university supports Palestine? How can a media organization continue to function if its reputation is synonymous with genocide denial and parroting war propaganda? How could a politician hope to get reelected if they get heckled and mocked and laughed out of every room they step in? And that's what this Global Day of Action shows, that this is all actually completely in our hands, and that when we all act together on the same day, in the same coordinated fashion, our fear melts away, and the things we once thought were impossible no longer seem so far away. In many ways, it feels like this latest Israeli massacre has actually awoken a sleeping giant. The November 9th call to action was issued to disrupt business as usual, and another day of action is already being planned for November 17th. The question of what happens next is no longer just in the hands of governments. The question of what happens next won't be decided for us by some outside force. What happens next depends entirely on us, and whether or not we finally decide that we've had enough with business as usual. What are your thoughts? I'd like to hear from you. I'm sure you have some ideas, suggestions. How would you end the conflict? So it is fair for the average Israeli citizen, but it gives freedom and tear down the walls and allow them to live in harmony. Oh, and by the way, I would suggest they're going to have to do it all over again as far as building. Don't rebuild in Gaza. Why? Because all these bombs that are going off, Americans make those with depleted uranium. That soil is going to be toxic for at least the next 5,000 years. If you want examples of how bad it is, look at Yugoslavia. Look at all the birth defects. Look at Iraq. Look at Fallujah. Now, we filmed in Fallujah for my documentary on Gulf War Syndrome. 
And I premiered it at the AMC Theater, 1,000 seats, biggest one I could find in New York, down on 42nd Street. It was packed in the standing room only. Michael Moore and other people were there for the premiere. And I, I was, two days before premiere, we're having a debate in my production room between some of the frontline producers, my editors, myself. Should we show people the pictures? 5,000 pictures handed to us by doctors saying, smuggle these out of the country because they're not going to, they'll confiscate these. Because we're telling patients don't, and people living here don't have babies this time because we're surrounded by depleted uranium. It's in the air, it's in the soil, it's in the water, and this is the results. You look at the pictures, you see Cyclops' baby, one eye in the middle of his head. You see a baby born with no brain. That's depleted uranium. And this was confirmed by Professor Doug, uh, Doug Rocky, who was sent by the Pentagon over there with a team to see what is the impact of depleted uranium. He came back and gave him a devastating report of how dangerous it is. Didn't stop the Pentagon. But what about all the soldiers that wear bullets on their body so they can put them in their guns? That's depleted uranium. What about all the people in tanks? We got depleted uranium shells. Depleted uranium does not mean non-toxic. It's extremely toxic. And then it's in the air. So now think of all the depleted uranium that is going to go all over that part of Israel. By the way, it can go with winds and the dust thousands of miles. And no one has done a story on this at all. For citizen journalists, that's a good story to do. Depleted uranium, the deadly legacy of the fight in Gaza. Let's go to our phones, 888-874-4888. I'd like to hear from you about any part of the cause and the solution. So as not to hear anyone chanting anti-Semitic statements. That's wrong. All right? The goal is not to condemn the average citizen in Israel, Jewish citizen, or in the United States, nor is it to condemn the average Palestinian. You can condemn, rightly so, those responsible as the architects on the Israeli side and the architects on Hamas's side. But they do not represent the majority of people. The majority of people in this world want peace. They want comfort in their lives. They don't want to live with the idea they're going to be arrested because of their ethnicity or uh, their, their status as a occupied people. I was going to play a clip from the leader of South Africa who condemned this and said there's needs he's far necessary because they lived under apartheid. And remember, Americans didn't even know apartheid existed, probably couldn't spell it. It was only when we went down, lots of us, to get ourselves arrested in front of the South African embassy as a gesture of support, solidarity for the poor people of South Africa that lived for a long time under apartheid, that finally the media woke up. Well, now we're asking the media to wake up and it's refusing to. It's aligned completely with the administration, which is the military-industrial complex, with all the generals and warmongers you see on television justifying what they're doing. There's no justifying for killing a child, let alone 7,000 children. No justification. This is just the beginning. Imagine how many Israelis, 1.5 million in one part, northern part of Gaza. Gaza's small. It's only twice the size. It's the size of a Detroit. 
or twice the size of Manhattan. Small, five miles wide, about 24 to 27 miles long, and no exit except into the Sinai, which is controlled by Egypt. Egypt doesn't want him. Doesn't want him. Lebanon doesn't want him. And so where are these people without a home supposed to go? Into the Sinai? Well, how would you like? And I'd like to see Sean Hannity. God, is he a mess. What a person. Wow. I'd like to see all these neocons on the Democrats, the Clintons. I'd like to see Bill and Hillary Clinton, all of them, Barack Obama, and go and live for one month under the same identical conditions that these uh, these uh, Palestinians are supposed to be living under when they go into the Sinai. It's a desert. There's no water. Every day, every meal is going to be something that someone has to bring to them. There's no freedom. Why they can't go back, and, and Netanyahu's made it clear, once they're gone, we're going to bulldoze everything, and they're not coming back ever. How's that the best democracy in the Middle East? Why can't we be honest about anything? But we can't, can we? I don't see any calls, so we're going to play you another clip. Thank goodness there are people who are not cowards. I just did a pre-interview with one of the smartest guys on the planet. It'll be a, uh, it was, it's going to air on a progressive commentary hour. But he is the world's foremost neuroscientist. Anyhow, we were talking about where is the mind? It's not in the brain. Where is it? You will find it interesting. And I said, when you were being challenged in the mid-1980s for these views that were not linear and reductionist about life, did other scientists come to your aid? He said, no. No, they didn't. How about other physicians? No, they didn't. And I reminded him that no one, none of the 900,000 cowards called medical doctors, nor the millions of nurses, cowards, most, and the scientific community, totally cowards, nobody came to the raid because they knew to do so, the powers that be are going to destroy your reputation. And they did so. But at least these people are real heroes. You'll hear them. Well, here's a real hero, most powerful voice in the European Union. She was the most powerful voice in the Irish Parliament. This is Claire Daly. Listen to what she has to say in this minute, 17-second clip. Grazie, Presidente. I voted for this report because, in principle, I don't have a huge problem with the EU raising money through things like taxing corporate profits because somebody has to, and God knows member states like my own certainly aren't going to do it. But there is an elephant in the room, and that's the question of why the EU needs to raise all this money for itself. It's just got a €1 trillion budget two years ago. Where did all the money go? Well, we all know where it went. The EU blew all that cash on war and weapons, and now it's passing around the hat for more. It's not just the own resources. The Commission has demanded that member states cough up an extra 100 billion, 100 billion, to fatten up the budget that the EU blew on war and militarism. Half of that is for Ukraine, a country whose destruction we continue to cheerlead. Well, shame on you because somebody is making money out of this and it's certainly not the poor people in Ukraine or Europe. If the EU wants to find some money, there's an easy way to do it. Back a ceasefire in Ukraine, stop the war and give that ruined country a chance to rebuild itself. Not to be outdone by that speech, here's another short speech 
where she says, don't expect the rest of the world to take you seriously. She's talking about the European Union and its allies, the United States and Great Britain. Here's her second little talk. I voted against this file. Promoting the right to participate is obviously a noble goal, but this report twists it into an excuse to pretend that we're somehow in charge, to sit in judgment of Global South elections and interfere if we don't like the results. And to be honest with you, after the last month, I'm finding it difficult to understand why anybody would think that the rest of the world would give a damn what we think. For weeks, billions have watched as Europe has stood lock, stock and barrel behind our friend apartheid Israel. We call Israel a democracy. In this democracy, 4.5 million Palestinians live under occupation with no rights at all, victims of dehumanisation, arbitrary checkpoints, settler violence, brutalisation by security forces, a military court system and no vote. This is what we call, with a straight face, the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, it's over. After the show Europe's made of itself recently, don't expect the rest of the world to be um, taking you seriously anytime soon. Also, for those of you who are inquisitive about the truth, that it's a democracy, a democracy would not impose some form of medical intervention on a person to keep them from pro procreating, would they? Well, they did. Do your homework. Look at what happened when Africans came to Israel and they were only allowed in the country if they were vaccinated. That vaccine was a luteinizing vaccine that made them sterile. So you sterilize all the young girls coming in there, and the women coming in, so they won't have babies. I don't see anything xenophobic or racist about that, do you? Of course it is. But no one in the American media dare call them out for that, because then what are you going to do with the idea that they're the safest democracy in the Middle East? Yeah. Keep believing that. But here's a brave person. And I, for all of you young people, millions of you, thank you for raising your voice in nonviolence. But your messaging is going to impact if you go through with it and boycott all American companies that support Israel. Vote against every politician that supports Israel. That's how your vote counts. And now I believe you have something worth voting on. Here's a young Israeli, Jewish, all right? But she grew up where her home in her neighborhood was right beside the uh, Gazan Strip, the wall. A lot of her friends and family had been in that uh, zone as soldiers. And she heard the stories. And she was appalled by the xenophobia, by the racist comments, by them treating the, uh, the, the, the Palestinians as if they were animals. So she became an activist for peace. They didn't like that. Here's what they did to her. Here's what her own government did to a young teenage Jewish woman when she raised her voice in opposition to the occupation. Listen in. Hello, thank you for joining me. I'm very delighted to be joined today by Atalia Ben Abba. She is an Israeli conscientious objector who was imprisoned for refusing to serve 
in the IDF. I just want to firstly thank you so much, Natalia. It's a big honor to be joined by you. And I know anyone watching or listening to this, I think will be in awe of your courage and the fact that you're, you're here to speak about what's happening, the horror at the moment. So just start, you were 19 years old. This was 2017. Can you explain why you refused to serve in the Israeli Defense Forces at that age and what the consequences were? Yes. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Um, so when I refused, um, I was already an anti-occupation activist, and mainly in Jerusalem, uh, where I grew up. Um, and I, I grew up in an area that is like really in the border between uh, East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, and East Jerusalem is the Palestinian part. And so I was very, like, I felt that I, I grew up with an understanding of what um, an, a military occupation looks like. And I just felt like I could not look myself in the eyes if I become a part of that. Um, I didn't want to be a part of this military occupying force. And I didn't want to, to feel like I'm a part of what enables the occupation. And the way I saw it and still see it, I think the, the military force of Israel enables its control over Palestinian people. And I felt that any role I would take inside that system would be um, yeah, just helping it and being a part of it. And you, you were sent to prison for four, four months? As four a months, yeah. So can you just tell me what was, you know, you're a teenager. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's a, it's a big sacrifice uh, to make. Um, it was complicated, I think. Um, a lot of my, my closest friends at the time enlisted, and, and it felt like we could remain friends, but when it actually happened, when they became soldiers and I became like this very committed anti-occupation activist, it, it, we couldn't be friends anymore. It just felt like we didn't speak the same language anymore. Just in like the very basic of like, what are we talking about? Like they had military stories, which I thought were just like so hard. Um, and, and it was very difficult with my family. And I think being in a, in a military prison for four months was a complicated experience. But actually, I think going through it when I was so young, it, it somehow, you know, I looked at it as like this. Yeah, everyone was my age, you know, like the, the other prisoners were also 18 or 19 and the officers were 18 or 19. Like it's like everyone is your age and no one is like a real criminal because it's a military prison. Most of the girls that were there with me uh, were deserters because of economic reasons. It was this very, um, I don't know, interesting experience. Now, I mean, in terms of this occupation, this is the longest belligerent Okay, there's someone who went to prison rather than compromise her spiritual values of finding all life to be sacred, unless a person chooses not to be sacred in their life. Imagine that during COVID, as an example, there was proclamations that if you were sick, had a heart attack and had to go to the hospital, and one person who was going in the hospital emergency room had 
COVID vaccinations and you didn't, that you should just die. Actually said that. Uh, Jimmy Kimball, Don Lemon, Howard Stern, and others, celebrities, were extremely aggressive and obnoxious and cruel. I mean, is that their real nature? Is that who they are? Well, I don't know any of these people personally. Never met any of them personally. Quite frankly, don't want to meet any of them personally because they have a right to their views, and I respect that. But imagine then if you didn't get vaccinated and they controlled legislation that said if you don't vaccinate, you have to go to prison for regular prison for four months. How would that affect people? In the United States, how many teenagers have the strength of character to go to prison rather than to be a part of it, of what they consider uh, the wrong side of an issue? The founder of Pacifica was an conscientious objector, founded Pacifica based upon the principles of peace. And of course, not, not unusual for Pacifica, they threw him out after a couple of years, committed suicide. Uh, so surprising he waited that long based upon what they do. <laughs> what a mess. So why don't we give some warmth in our heart for all those people willing to sacrifice something for greater good? Because look at who was right. Look who was on the right side of the COVID issue. We were, you were, I was, and the few scientists and few phys- fewer physicians who are now looked upon as, wow, you were right, and all other medical doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and, and I don't care what excuse they use, knowing the truth, hiding the hideous results of four, f- no, excuse me, uh, Five to 600,000 dead Americans, 1.6 million permanently injured, and 14 million injured, you would think that that's a medical genocide. It is. Not a word. No complaint because the checks came to the hospitals, everybody was rewarded, research grants galore, just like AIDS. And Anthony Fauci mismanaged that, and he mismanaged this. Will any of these people ever be held accountable? I don't know but you should be held accountable for standing up for what is right. Good for you. I'm going to hit some other issues now. If you call in, I'll be happy to take your calls. I don't have any calls on the line right now. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.